of all the churches that were in the first century, it looks like the Colossae was the one that was most similar to the Laodicean church today. I conclude that because near the end of the book of Colossians, the Colossians are told to read the letter that was sent to the Laodiceans, and the Laodiceans are told to read the letter that was sent to the Colossians. And in chapter 2, looking at verse 1, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Three categories of people that seem to have something in common, those that lived in Colossae, those that lived in Laodicea. Do we need to move this further, or am I speaking too loud or too quietly? All right. Speak louder. I can do... Are you sure? Okay. The first thought I want to leave with you this morning is that if you'll study the book of Colossians, you'll be reading a message that has been fine-tuned for the church in the way that it is today. Colossians chapter 2 and going on, that their hearts might be comforted, be knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledging of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. What was it that Laodicea needed, that Colossae needed? The first thing it mentions is that they needed to be comforted, having their hearts knit together in Love plays a significant role in the end of time. This passage that we're familiar with, as, as many as endure unto the end, or he that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. What is it that must endure unto the end? It's the verse before that tells us that because iniquity abounds, the love of many will wax cold. In our day, it's an enduring love that will make a difference in the salvation of the last day people. Colossians needed to have their heart knit together in love, but there was something they needed, and it was a full assurance of understanding of the mystery of God. What is the mystery of God? Maybe we're more familiar than most people. What's the mystery of God? And is that from the same context of Colossians 2? Well, you know, it's only five verses before this very verse. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul was saying that Colossae had two problems. One, they had some disunion. Their hearts weren't knit together in love. And the other, they weren't fully persuaded about this issue, that Jesus was going to be in them a hope of the character that they could develop with him. This was their problem. Is that our problem today? It's the same thing. Turn us in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. The name Laodicea is similar in meaning to the name Daniel. Daniel means God is judge. You might remember the, the blessing slash curse on the tribe of Dan. That Dan would be a judge of his people. And El is God. Laodicea means a people judged. The last day church, we're the ones who are living in the time of the judgment. Colossians 3 and verse 14. Revelation 3, sorry, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, 
The faithful and true witness, moving to verse 17, because you say, I am rich and increased with goods. The contrast between verse 14 and 17 is that Jesus has something to say to us as a people, and also we have something that we tend to say to ourselves. What does Jesus tend to say to us as a people? Among other things, he says, I know your works. What do we tend to say to ourselves as a people? I am rich and increased with goods. And knowest not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What I want to do for you in the next 10 minutes is, and if you take notes, it's a good time to take them. I'm not a preacher, I'm a teacher. Is to give you an understanding of those five words, something particular that they mean. When Jesus says to us as a people that we're wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked, to understand the message he's communicating, turn, keep your finger here, or if you have a little piece of ribbon that will help you turn back to Revelation 3 quickly, put it there, and then turn with me to Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, we're looking at this word wretched. What did Jesus mean when he said to us that we are wretched? In fact, the Greek word translated wretched is only used one other time in the entire Bible. And that is here in Romans 7. Romans 7 and verse 21. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. And verse 23, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. Paul is describing a situation of someone, is this person in captivity to the law of sin? Captivity to the law of sin. Does the person want to do the right thing? He wants to do the right thing. Is he doing the right thing? He's not. And in fact, that is... Why he cries in verse 24, O wretched man that I am. What does wretched mean in this passage? It means wanting to do right, but being unable to do right because we're captive to the law of sin. In general, that describes our church today. Wanting to do right, Jesus says, but captive to the law of sin, to the law of our flesh. The Greek word translated miserable in Revelation 3 is also used only one other place in the entire scripture. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 15. Turn with me there to 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, speaking about the resurrection, Paul begins to reason what, what life would be like or what we would have to be thinking if there was no resurrection. He says that if there was no resurrection, then those who are sleeping are gone. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 18. They also which are fallen asleep in Christ Jesus are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. What does miserable mean in 1 Corinthians 15? It means living your life thinking you're going to heaven, dying and not going. In 1 Corinthians 15, it would be because there was no resurrection. That's the hypothetical, but it's not that way for Laodicea. There is a resurrection, 
And yet the word describes her living all her life thinking that she's going to heaven and then dying and not going. In fact, turn with me to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. And looking at verse 18. Amos chapter 5 and verse 18. It says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. What do we call people who desire the day of the Lord? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And if I can just read that verse again with that interpretation, woe unto Adventist. To what end is it, the day of the Lord, for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. Do we talk this way that we can't wait to go to heaven because then we're going to be free from the devil? You know, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And when we go to heaven, he's not there anymore. This passage says, it's as if a man was looking forward to getting away from the devil and he met a bear. Where in the Bible does someone meet a bear in judgment? Why, it's a number of young people. It's a number of youth who treated God's prophet without proper respect. If I could just read the passage interpretively, Jesus said, to what end is the second coming for you, Adventist? You think you're going to get away from the devil, but you're going to meet judgment for the way you have disrespected the prophet. Verse 19, the last half. Or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Do we talk about Satan under the figure of a serpent and heaven under the figure of our home? In fact, these metaphors are ones we can understand easily. Jesus says, Adventist, you think that when I come back, you're going to be going home, but you're going to find out you've been deceived. If I could summarize what we've said so far. When Jesus speaks to Laodicea, the faithful and true witness says to us that you're captive to the law of sin. You think you're going to heaven, but you're really facing a serious judgment for the way you've treated the prophet. You've been deceived. Jesus said, wretched and miserable, poor. Now remember, what we tend to say about ourselves is that we are rich. What are spiritual riches? Look with me in your Bible at James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And we'll begin looking at verse 5. James 2 verse 5. The first word is hearken. That's meaningful. We'll look at it in a minute. It says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, 
Has not God chosen the poor of this world? Then it says, rich in faith. The, the, the ones that God chooses, what are they rich in? Faith. Faith is the wealth of spiritual life. Faith is the gold that spiritual people have. But these people that are chosen, is this their only characteristic in this verse? These rich people? Notice what it says. Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which God has promised to them that love him. The kingdom is going to those that love him. Do those that are rich in faith get the kingdom? They do in this verse. So those that are rich in faith must also love him. And in fact, if you'll do your own word study at some point, you'll find that faith and love go together. In the New Testament and the Old, faith and love are the gold that Laodicea needs. Faith and love, faith works by love. If faith is worth anything, it's because there's love there. Faith and love go together. They're the richness that Laodicea needs. And Jesus says to Laodicea, you are poor. Laodicea says to herself, I'm rich. She thinks she has a great deal of faith and love. Why would she think so? I say she, I should say we, it's the same. Why do we think so? It's because we don't understand faith and we don't understand love. On the issue of love, we have confused sentiment with love. If I could say this in a way that we can all understand, if somehow we could push a button and this half of the audience would, be, would disappear and be replaced with an entire group of sincere, atheistic people. Especially young families with atheistic children and atheistic parents. There would be some commonality between the two sides of this room. For one thing, if I would tell a very sad story, mothers on both sides would cry. And in fact, if I would ask everyone who loves their children to raise their hand, Mothers on both sides would raise their hands. And in fact, if, it, if children on either side were threatened with death, parents on both sides would be willing to give their life to save their children. And if I could just summarize what I'm getting to, there is a certain type of love that has never distinguished believers from unbelievers. Jesus talked about it. He said, if you love those that love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the publicans the same. The love that distinguishes God's people from others is the love for enemies and the unlovely and those that we could easily excuse ourselves for ignoring. God's love is not a sentiment because all classes will cry at sentimental stories. And if you see, if we showed a video of starving children, everyone's heart would be touched. Believer or unbeliever, consecrated or not consecrated, we would all feel for them. There's nothing wrong with sentiment. We ought to have sentiment. It's a good thing. But never has it distinguished believers from unbelievers. It doesn't. What distinguishes them is going out of your way, putting your own needs behind for the benefit of someone else. Laodicea has a great deal of sentiment, and so she thinks that she has a great deal of love. But she's lacking in this thing to go do what people need when she doesn't want to do it. What about faith? 
I'm going to suggest to you a definition of faith for you to study. The just shall live by... That passage is in the Bible three times. Also, man shall not live by bread alone, but by... That passage is in the Bible twice directly and indirectly another time. Either there are two different ways to live, or else living by faith is the same thing as living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That, did you follow the logic of what I just said? Either there are two ways to live, because these both describe ways to live, or else they're talking about the same thing. I'm sure it's the latter thing. Faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Faith is not a set of opinions. The idea of faith being a set of opinions came in the Middle Ages. And we have inherited it to a certain degree. When you talk about the faith, or when the Roman Catholic Church talks about defender of the faith, they mean defenders of a certain set of Opinions. Does Laodicea have a good set of opinions? You know, at least the part of the part of Laodicea that's Sabbatarian, it wouldn't be accurate to say that Revelation 3 is only about Seventh-day Adventist. That wouldn't be accurate. The term Laodicea applies to Christendom in general. But the part that refers to Seventh-day Adventist, we have a good set of opinions. That's not faith. If I could say this another way, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you believe that he loves you, if you believe that we're obligated to keep his law, but that we're saved by his grace, your opinions are right, but not one or all of them together are faith. Faith is living by the word of God. What does faith look like? This depends on what part of the word of God is being considered by faith. If faith is looking at a warning that a flood is coming, faith looks like building an ark. If faith is commanded to offer up an only son, faith looks like going up to Mount Moriah with a knife. If faith reads a beautiful promise, it can look a lot like joy. And if faith reads a command... It looks precisely like obedience. In short, it's not that we're saved by faith in one passage and saved by repentance and confession in another or saved by, by following Jesus or by the, the words of God. Faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and our repentance is a manifestation of faith. It, what does faith look like when it considers the story of Calvary? Faith looks like repentance. It looks like humility. Jesus says to Laodicea that you are poor, meaning you have very little faith, you have very little love. You think you have it because you have good opinions and sincere sentiments. But you're not living a selfless life for the benefit of those that you that dislike you and you may dislike. You're not living by all the counsel that's come to you from the word of God. Wretched and miserable and poor and then blind. Turn us in your Bibles to Acts 26. Acts chapter 26. We're going to read the part of the call of the Apostle Paul. 
Acts 26 and verse 18. Acts 26 verse 18 says, Jesus said to Paul, You are called to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. If I could just say the thought simply, those that are blind in Acts 26, have they received forgiveness yet? They haven't. They're still under the power of Satan. And in fact, these words, wretched and miserable and poor and blind, all say the same thing. They say Laodicea thinks she's going to heaven, but she's been deceived. She's not on her way yet. Laodicea wants to do right, but she can't. She's in captivity to the law of sin. She's still under the power of Satan. She hasn't been turned yet from darkness to light. She has a good set of opinions, but she's not living by the word of God. Her her faith and her love are weak at best. Or in, in simpler words, Laodicea is unconverted, 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 unconverted. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind. And the last word is the easiest of all of them. Naked. To describe the church of Jesus as naked is so sad. What should the church be wearing? The righteousness of Jesus. And if she's not wearing it, is she on her way to heaven? Isn't that the most simple thing to understand? In verse 18, Revelation 3, verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. But in the verse before, he said that you are poor. And it is a valid question how someone that is poor can buy gold tried in the fire. Or how someone that doesn't have gold can buy it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. And verse 1, the first point I'm going to notice doesn't even exist in so many translations of the Bible. If it doesn't exist in yours, just ignore it, and the rest of the points do. It's that first word, ho. It means listen or pay attention. It's not in a lot of your Bibles, is it? It's in mine. It says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters, and he that has no money, come ye by and eat. Is this a helpful passage for us? Jesus said we're poor, and yet he said we're to come by. Here's a passage how poor people can buy. Verse 2, Wherefore do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. There's something more you can spend than your money. What's something else you can spend? 
And in this passage, your labor is what I'm looking for. You can spend your labor. And it's a valid question, Jesus asked, what you do with the energies of your life and with the money that you have, what, why are you using them for things that don't bring satisfaction or fulfillment? Hearken diligently unto me. That is in your other Bibles. It means the same thing as ho. Verse 1 said ho. Verse 2 said hearken diligently unto me and eat that is good. And verse 3 said incline your ear. Incline your ear means the same thing as hearken diligently unto me, which means the same thing as ho. Incline your ear and come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live. Hear means the same thing as incline your ear, which means the same thing as hearken diligently unto me, which means the same thing as ho. What God is saying, what you can do if you need to buy the gold of faith is listen and pay attention to what he has to say. You can pay attention. What do you have when you're poor that you can pay? Attention. You've read this in Romans, right? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. If the question is, how can Laodicea get faith and love that she needs so badly when she doesn't have it, the answer is she can diligently apply herself to listen to God's counsel, to hear his words, to go after with her heart the things he has to say. Turn back with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and white raiment, that you may be clothed. But there's something more than being clothed in Revelation 3.18. It's that, and and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. In the judgment, the shame of our nakedness most certainly appears. You remember that parable? The man who didn't have on the wedding garment. But I'm going to suggest to you a thought for your consideration that our nakedness appears even here and now. That the world looking on can see your nakedness. And what I mean by that, I can show you if you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 addresses the issue of the robe of Christ's righteousness. There is an imputed robe and there is an imparted robe, but it wouldn't be accurate to say that they're different robes. In fact, there is such a difference between the word of Jesus and my word or your word. You're in Colossians 3. We're going to read it in a minute, but just listen. If I were to say to you that the ceiling is blue, I would be wrong. 
human words are descriptive. They are either accurate or inaccurate. God's word is creative. And if God were to say, the ceiling is blue, though it might not be true when he said it, it would be true when he said it. If you understand what I mean. It is the same with you when Jesus says of your faith that he counts it for righteousness. When Jesus says that you are righteous, though it's not true when he says it, his word has power and it goes on a mission to change you. The mission that has been filling this earth with seeds and plants for 6,000 years will keep working in you until the day of Christ appearing. The word that says you are righteous begins to work in you to make you righteous. You have to check that out too to see if I'm telling you the truth. But I will give you some evidence. Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to look in verse 8. But now you also put off all these. There is a robe to take off, and we're going to read about it. Anger, wrath, malice, evil speaking. My version does say blasphemy, but you ought to know that's just what it means. Evil speaking, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Is there a robe to take off? There's a robe to take off. Can people see if you're wearing that robe? You know, they can. Verse 10, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. This is a, a profound concept, and I can't prove it to you the same as I can tell it to you. When God created Adam, Adam was made in the image of God. And when he was corrupted, he was changed in one significant way that was no good at all. He came to have a knowledge of good and evil by experience. He already knew some things he shouldn't do. He knew evil by prohibition, but now he knew evil by experience. God would like to renew us in knowledge after the image of him that created us. So that again, we would know evil by prohibition and no longer know it by experience. I told you I'm a teacher as opposed to a preacher. One of the effects of that is that my voice is not exciting enough to keep people awake. And, and you're going to sleep on me. So if I could have you stand up for just a minute, I'd appreciate you doing that. No problem. All right. You may have a seat. That's enough. You're awake. Okay, that's enough. Yes, please. Have a... And I didn't do that to be funny. You understand why I did that? So you would listen. Colossians chapter 3, and we're looking now at verse 12. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. It says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. 
Is this a robe that people can see? Well, it's a tricky question, perhaps. But I will tell you that there are times when you think you don't see any of those things in someone. And if someone is living the kind of life you read about in Colossians 3, the shame of his nakedness will not appear. Verse 13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man has a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. What do you put on? Verse 14, and above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. I'll just summarize the thought and say it. The robe of righteousness that Jesus wants to give you, when you live by faith, he will say you're righteous. Then his word goes on a mission to change you. That imparted righteousness and imputed, they come together, but there's something you have to do with it. It's to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's the faith. And that faith makes you look a lot different. And react so differently that the world doesn't see that shamefulness that they shouldn't have to see. Turn us in your Bibles to Second Timothy. I think it's actually First Thessalonians chapter three. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and looking at verse 12. First Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12. It says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Love in this passage is growing in three directions. It describes a love among the church that's growing so that you love each other more. And not just this much and now this much, but it's an, a growing love. You love each other more today than you did yesterday. This kind of love doesn't, a growing love doesn't match well with statements like, I love him, but I don't like him. <laughs> you understand? Because that very phrase, when you say, I don't like him, does it cause your love for him to grow or does it minimize it? It really does. And this passage is not talking just about a static love, but about a, a growing love. Verse 13, what is the end result of this kind of love? To the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This is just another tidbit or tad bit of thought for you. Maybe at some point in your life you've done a study on the word perfection. Maybe you have, and maybe you've never even thought about it. And maybe you've heard individuals preach that the last generation of faithful people is going to be like Jesus in ways that no other generation has been. 
like him in character. But if you went looking for this word perfection in the Bible, what you would find are a number of verses that look like they're talking about people in the days of Jesus and the days of Paul, the same as our days and all days, it's all about the same thing. Try another study, looking up words like blameless and without blame and holy and without spot. And I think as you look at those verses, you'll find a few other ways that prophets say the very same thing. And you'll find these passages connected consistently with Christ's coming in the last generation. Look at chapter 5 for a minute. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You might wonder, how did we suddenly get to this from Laodicea? But you remember how we started. Laodicea needed a couple things. She needed to have her hearts knit together in love. And what else did she need? A full assurance of understanding regarding the mystery of God. And surely she doesn't have that in general. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And if we were going to read as much as we wanted to, we might read like verses 15 through 22. What 15 and 22 are, are a number of counsels to us. Things to do. Things for you to do. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice evermore. Despise not prophesying. Try everything. Hold fast that which is good. But when you get to verse 23, there's quite a change in the nature of what's going on. Verse 23 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. Holy there is spelled with a W. The verses before it, who's being commanded to do the things? Why, the commands are to us. We're the ones that are to do this, 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 and the other thing. But who's doing the doing in verse 23? He's the one who takes responsibility for sanctifying you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus. Who's doing verse 23? In case someone missed that little thought, Paul repeats it again in verse 24. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. If I could summarize these ideas so you can see it, and then I'll share one more and stop. God gives, 10, God gives you things that you can do. I don't mean you can do it by yourself. Please, I didn't say that. But I mean he gives you burdens that are burdens that on your shoulders you can imagine focusing your mind on. You can get your mind around the idea of rejoicing evermore and praying without ceasing. You pray and talk to God and ask him to work with you and live inside of you, and, and those are commands to you. But the command of becoming like Jesus entirely is enough to crush you. God doesn't put that burden on you. The burden he puts on you is to live by every word that proceeds in the mouth of God. The burden he puts on himself is to finish the work. The burden he puts on you is to hold on to your faith. And the burden he puts on himself is to be the finisher of it. If you understand the contrast between the two burdens, you won't be overwhelmed by the work that you have to do.
turn with me in your Bibles to Amos, chapter 9. Are we already in the shaking? Or maybe you never heard the word. But um, the answer I was looking for is yes. Um, we're in a time described as the shaking. Described that way in some of Ellen White's writings, but the metaphor comes from the Bible. It comes from this chapter, Amos 9, and also it comes from some things that were said by John the Baptist. John the Baptist talked about the judgment in terms of a floor of wheat, and Jesus comes with a fan in his hand. And what does the fan do? Yeah, it blows away the chaff. And then the chaff makes a big mess in that illustration. So does it just go with the wind? No. What happens to the chaff? Why well, it's burned up with unquenchable fire. And chaff is very burnable. We are going to read Amos 9, but again, listen for a second. Are there things that you can think of in the New Testament that are, are compared to winds other than the Holy Spirit? Okay, in Ephesians 4 and Revelation 7, both were said at the same time. In Ephesians 4, it's winds of doctrine. Are winds of doctrine taking out chaff? They are taking the chaff out, and some of the chaff is holding on tightly, but it certainly is being blown by the winds. Then there are other pieces of chaff that are taken out by the winds of Revelation 7, those winds of strife. I heard a story. I don't have any way to verify it, just that I read it in a publication that I trusted. I don't recommend trusting publications. But the story was of our publishing house in China, where we had 100 workers when the Communist Revolution took over and nationalized the printing press. And as I heard the story, when the communists came in, they gave the 100 employees of the Adventist Publishing House an opportunity, if they wanted to, to request Sabbaths off. But I'm sure the Chinese suspected, like you would too, that it's just a trap. Anyway, even if it is a trap, you ought to request Sabbaths off. But only one of them did. What happened after that isn't really even significant to me. That's the second wind. The first wind is taking people out. The second wind is going to take more people out. That's the scary thought of the shaking. I want to leave with you the encouraging thought of the shaking, and that's found in Amos chapter 9 and verse 9. Amos chapter 9 and verse 9. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. There are ways that Jesus compares the shaking experience to what farmers do, and there are ways that he contrasts. The comparison is this. A farmer wants to get rid of the chaff. So he throws the stuff up, 
the wind blows, he catches as much as he can, and he's not very concerned if he loses a grain or two on the ground. Jesus says it's in that second respect that the shaking is so different. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Or if I could say it in a different way, the shaking does not shake out weak Christians. It shakes out false Christians. If you're a struggling soul praying for God to help you and battling the powers of evil in your life, the shaking is not something coming to blow you off your foundation. The smallest grains don't, aren't taken away with the shaking. But Laodicea in general is not a collection of small grains. She's a collection of chaff. And it's worthwhile for us to deal truly with our own souls and make sure of where we are and what we're doing. If we're a struggling soul, the smallest kind, the shaking is not going to take us away. But if we're big chaff, we just go away anyway. I'm going to summarize everything I've said so far and and be done. We are a people judged. That's what the word Laodicea means. If you want to find a book that's written for Laodiceans besides Revelation 3, what book would you look at? I highly recommend it. Laodicea has a couple problems. One of them is that she's not in it together in love. And another one is that she doesn't really understand this mystery of God business. She needs to fully understand it and have full assurance that it's so. Laodicea is described with five code words that all mean unconverted, but they're informative. They mean that she thinks she's going to heaven in general, but she's not headed that direction. We think that, that we're going there, but we've been deceived by the devil. We think that we have faith and love because we have good opinions and we are touched by sad stories. We love our children and our friends so much, but we don't have that kind of love that distinguishes Christians from non-Christians. And our faith is not living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We haven't been turned yet from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. We can buy this faith that we need, but we can't buy it with money. What can we pay? We can listen to what God has to say and apply our hearts to have it. He wants to clothe us when we do with a righteousness that will make a difference in even how we appear to those on the outside. In fact, he said that they'll know you are Christians by your... And that's the thing that above all things we're to put on is charity. Love is the issue in the last days. If it's growing towards those that are without and towards those that are within and for leaders for the others, that is the condition that God places in 1 Thessalonians 3 for him finishing the work in you. He's given you certain things to do, but what burden has he taken on himself? It is to finish it and to sanctify you wholly. Don't be worried that he's going to come before he finishes the work. He says he doesn't come in Revelation 14 until the harvest is ripe. And James said he has long patience for it. Peter said that he's not willing that any should perish, and that's why he's taking so long. Is the shaking a solemn thing? It is. Winds are taking people out now, and winds will take more of them out later. 
It's scary because we're self-deceived and think we're grains when we're not. But if we'll deal truly with our own souls, it's not that hard to become a grain. God has made simple provision for it. The shaking will not shake out the least grain. And that's good news for us.